Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, I'm Maurice O'Keefe, and I'd like to welcome you to a special podcast. This is a tribute to David Reed Scott, who recently passed away. The title of this week's podcast is Life in an Irish Country House. Ballinure House in Grange Conning County Wicklow was built in the 1800s and it replaced a much earlier building built by the Carl family in the 17th century. And this is a unique story and it's told by two brothers, David and Malise Reed Scott, who were both brought up there by their grandparents, Mr. and Mrs. Uh, Christopher Mitchell and they were brought up in a very Victorian setting and I first asked David to explain to me the inheritance by the Mitchells. Uh, Mr Carroll who I believe to be the uh, and was indeed the father of the last Carroll Henry Carroll uh, who um, died childless in 1878 um, married uh, a girl called Miss Mitchell. And Miss Mitchell was the daughter uh, of a Jamaican sugar planter. Uh, she came to live here sometime in the middle of the 19th century because her husband died very young. Um, and it, um, they had, I think, um, two or three children. But the last Carol, Henry Carroll, who died in 1873 mm. or four. That he had had no children, and so he left it back to the son of Mrs. Mitchell, and so it then moved from Carol's to Mitchell's. And I think what happened was that she said, uh, "Daddy, uh, this Jacobean house, you know, and as you know, as you know better than me, the Jacobean houses tended to be high and narrow, mm. and only really one and a half rooms deep, uh, is not good enough for me. Um, I need a better house." And uh, so between about 1798 and 1800, um, the uh, Jacobean house was in turn wrapped, rather like the monastic farmhouse had been wrapped. And the two pedimented wings were put on and a complete new front to mm. um, the Jacobean house. And, that was, and the house was finished and it looks exactly as it does when it was finished that was finished in about 1800 what you have here now is a Georgian house yeah. uh, there are no signs or remnants uh, of um, the Jacobean house um, uh, and the only sort of residue of the monastic farmhouse uh, really is the cellar 
uh, and uh, where, what I th- believe to be, although I have, haven't um, dug it out, a secret passage which the monks had up to the yard, and there are signs up there that there was a chapel of some description uh, which was incorporated into a garden wall. Maldice explains here that after the house was left to the Mitchells, they arrived in Ballinure, bringing with them all their possessions from England. He left Ballinure to his wife, Miss Mitchell, Mrs. Carroll's family, I think a nephew, who was called Major Dermot, no, Major Wilmot Mitchell. And Major Mitchell arrived at Ballinure in about 1880, I suppose, and they, we don't know where they really came from. They arrived with all these... I mean, they were obviously pretty well-to-do, because in that... He, I mean, they arrived with very big pictures, painted by a man called Francis Grant. That picture in um, the dining room of the boy on the donkey and my ancestors, the Mitchells, was painted by Sir Francis Grant in, I think, about 1850 something. And anyway, these Mitchells came from somewhere bearing pictures and lovely silver and lovely china. There was some very nice furniture here uh, um, when I was being brought up. But over the years, um, my dear old grandfather uh, was quietly selling everything. So um, there was virtually no furniture when, when he died or when my grandmother finally died. Uh, I'll be perfectly honest, there was no furniture virtually of any value here at all. It was all sort of Edwardian stuff, which um, uh, you you could pick up for a song um, because, you know, the lovely Regency table had been sold to some antique shop in Dublin. Before David and Malise's grandmother married Christopher Mitchell, her maiden name was Hildreth Blackwell and previously married. When my grandmother married my grandfather in, I suppose, about 1917. And there was a terrific hoo-ha about that because she was married to um, Captain Tyrrell O'Malley, who uh, had been captured by the Germans. And to divorce somebody in 1917, let alone a prisoner of war, was considered very bad show indeed. Anyway, they went, my grandmother and grandfather uh, got married, and they went to live in Jamaica where he had a sugar plantation because I think they just wanted to get the hell out of it and let things calm down mm-hmm. because a lot of people disapproved of their behavior and they went to live in Jamaica for two or three years I think where my uncle David Mitchell was born and uh, he very sadly was killed in 1941 at a battle called the Battle of Kerren uh, in Abyssinia as it was called in those days and and I think my mother was probably conceived in um, Jamaica. Anyway, cut a long story short, they, my grandfather eventually sold the sugar plantation and came back to take up full-time residence at Ballinure. And after the Mitchells arrived back to live in the house at Ballinure, Hildred invited her sister Phyllis to come and visit her at the house. You see, what happened was... My aunt, (coughs) my grandmother's sister, who was called uh, Phyllis Maud Blackwell, they were two sisters. My grandmother, who became Mrs. Mitchell, uh, was Hildred Ruth Mitchell, and she married, as I say, my grandfather. And then in about, at the beginning of the war, 
Her sister, who was a spinster, Phyllis, Aunt Phil as we called her, came to live at Ballinor. And I think the plan was that she should just come for a year or six months. or And she stayed for 45. (laughs) (laughs) Much to my grandfather's... Well, I don't think he was cross, but he was rather surprised. He wasn't quite (laughs) ready to have a sister-in-law living in his house for 45 years. (laughs) And he teased her terribly. Old girl, there was a lot of, how are you, old girl? My grandmother's sister, who came at the beginning of the war to stay, yes, I suppose for safety, and never left, had a pony and trap, and she would go racing at the Curra in her pony and trap. And then she took, must have taken her all day to get there. Four races, five races, and then come home. Both David and Malise's parents died when they were quite young, and they were brought up then in Ballinure by their grandparents. I was uh, born in Dublin, and um, uh, sadly, uh, I was—I I lost my mother in a hunting accident when I was six, uh, here with uh, the Kildare in in in, in Ireland. Um, and uh, my father died of cancer when I was twelve, and was brought—I was brought up subsequently, both here in Ireland, where we spent about sixty percent of our time, my brother and myself, my brother being a few months younger than me, um, and uh, in Leicestershire. Um, and we, we adored this, this house and um, the, the whole place that went with it. Well, I was born, like I suppose David was, in, we were born in Hatch Street, appropriately named, in Dublin, a Dublin nursing home, where lots of people. We were brought up at Ballinure. Browsing through the family album, Malise recalls those bygone days living at Ballinure. Here's a very nice picture of my grandfather with a pipe in his mouth and Uncle David and my mother and a, and a West Highland Terrier, I think it is, in the, on the front door step of Ballinure. And life like that, it's rather hunting. Of course, hunting was a huge activity. I, I mean, without hunting, there are a lot of horses here. Mm. And, and that lifestyle, of course, uh, you witnessed this. Uh, yeah, in, in here they are. There. David and I used to go up to the. Here's a picture of the. We used to call it the pool, and it was up in the Wicklow Mountains, and it was wonderful, and it, it was this sort of natural pool. Um, you know, and uh, there they all are swimming. 1929, My freezing cold. David and I used to go up there, and it had a wonderful rock. You could slide down the rock into the into the pool. It, and it was completely natural. I've, I haven't been back there for 30 years, I suppose, but I don't know if it exists or other mm. people found it. But it was a complete wilderness and a most delightful, lovely place to go and swim. When I was um, about 18 or 19, 19 you know, uh, I was sent off uh, with a load of calves um, uh, and I was had to drive eight miles up the road and, and um, I delivered the, car- the, car- the calves to another farmer who paid me cash uh, as one did in those days and I uh, came back here with my um, empty trailer handed over the cash to my grandfather who said sort of thanks very much instead of putting it in the bank uh, or using it to pay for the local supplies, what does he do? He goes straight down to Paddy Slater, who was the trainer in the village, and buys a horse. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> so he has he had a passion for horses as well, obviously. Yeah, he um, he had a passion for horses, and in 1938, he decided that he was going to become a trainer. Mm. Uh, but of course, um, he wasn't going to train the horses himself. Uh, he was going to get somebody else to train the horses. So he built um, the stables that we've got up there now. And he went off and he hired a very, very crooked South African who he brought up from South Africa to train his horses here. Well, uh, first of all, um, that was not a great success. Secondly, he was ripped off in every direction by the South African. And thirdly, the war started in 1939 um, and he was then 40, uh, whatever he was, 92. So he was, uh, he was about... Um, uh, 46 or 7 mm. and he immediately volunteered uh, um, and clearly uh, the whole of the racing community had to cut right back uh, any horses he had here from third parties were with, taken away end of training initiative and it, there was great celebration if he sold the cattle well but he would then unfortunately it didn't occur to him that having sold the cattle he had to replace them so he would probably blow the money on another racehorse or greyhound he got into greyhound when he couldn't afford a racehorse he had a very good racehorse it won the cunningham cup at the car, at the at punchestown david's got a photograph of it in i think 1934 and it was called St. Jago. And he named that horse after his sugar plantation in Jamaica, St. Jago, near Kingston. Yeah. And it won the Cunningham Cup, which was a big race at, at uh, Punchestown. And I think it was 1934. That was about as far as I'm aware, his only decent horse he ever had. But he loved his, he had the odd horse in training. He then, when he couldn't afford that anymore, he went to Greyhounds. They played a bit of golf. Um, they were quite good at... My grandfather was quite good at golf. I think they both yeah. were quite good at golf. Someday, I mean, Aunt B said they once went to Canada to play in some competition. And I remember my grandfather at Bolton... You see, he founded Bolton Glass Golf Club. He suddenly decided that we should have a golf course in the area. And he and Dr. Billy Lyons, who yes. was a very well-known doctor in Bolton Glass and was their doctor... Uh, got together and they bought the side of a hill where the Bolting Glass Golf Club is now and they made a nine-hole golf course. And returning again to the family album, Malice points out the way life was in Ballinure. There's Mrs Hall who was master of the, uh, the Carlo Hounds. She used to come to dinner with her chauffeur. And they used to go and, the chauffeur used to go and sit in what we called in those days the servants' hall and Mrs. Hall, um, actually she was Miss Hall, I think. I don't think she was ever married. And there she is riding side saddle. Mm. No, she is Mrs. Hall. There you are. And, and anyway, um, Nace Races, 1924. Look at the hat. Yes. <laughs> I mean, my grandfather, as David might have told you, had his routine was he would get up at about nine o'clock. They slept in separate bedrooms opposite each other at Berlin or Gar and Dumda. Um, and he would get up um, 
at about nine o'clock and go and have a bath. Ballinor in those days had really only two one bathroom which had a dividing partition and two large baths on either side and you could throw the soap over. If you got into your bath and you found there was no soap and somebody else was having a bath, you could hear them next door having a bath. And you say, can you throw the soap over the partition? <laughs> and it came shooting over. <laughs> you tried to catch it. And um, Dumdar would have a bath at about nine o'clock. And there was a chair outside, and Mr. Hempenstall, the steward, used to come and sit there at nine o'clock, and they would have a conversation. My grandfather was lying in the bath, yes, sort of washing, I suppose, and shaving and that sort of thing, and Hemp, as we called him, was sitting outside and would say, Colonel, my grandfather would say, now look here, Hemp, what's going on today? What are you going to do? What are the men going to do? And he would say, "Ah, oh, we're going to cut the oats." Her routine was: she would get up, she would sit at, she would first about nine o'clock. She would go into the kitchen, and sit on a stool, with a slate and a piece of chalk. Right. And in the um, in the kitchen, there was Mary Kennedy, who was the cook, and she would then do the meals for the day. I mean, things were not luxury. We didn't. We didn't have many. She, she had a lady's maid upstairs who looked after her bedroom and her clothes, and we had a daily, I suppose. And we had Mary Kennedy, the cook, who didn't. We had nobody living in the house. They all came in. They were all living in cottages or their own or my mm. grandfather's. I'm not sure. And she would sit on this stool with her piece of chalk and this slate and write down what the meals were. Lunch is going to be soup and something and then we'll push the boat out for dinner a bit and have um, not very much that would be exciting except that if somebody was going to Dublin they were always asked would you please buy some fish because only fresh fish you could only get fresh fish in Dublin so if somebody was going up to Dublin and coming back that afternoon, you knew that dinner would be sole, lemon sole or something like that, which was considered a huge luxury. I see. <laughs> I've been incredible. But she would do that. Then she would go shopping, where she would go to Dunlavin or Baltinglass, <coughs> having made some telephone calls. And as I say, she um, wouldn't ever get out of the car. She would just arrive outside the shop and toot loudly, and the shopkeeper would come out carrying a box of whatever she had ordered on the telephone. And while looking through this family album, Malice really captures life and how it was really lived in those days in an Irish country house. I'm now looking, I'm looking at my grandmother in her garden hut. There was this lovely wall garden. And as David will have told you, she um, spent all afternoon there. And um, there were herbaceous borders and rock gardens and the spring garden and the rose garden. She wasn't remotely interested in growing vegetables like most people are now. Um, she just loved her flowers. And she would send up a note uh, to the gardener, Joe, saying, I want three onions five leeks and, and 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 then i want um two delphiniums four gladioli because i'm going to do a huge which she did terribly old-fashioned but she did these enormous um flower arrangements in the hall yes. in a vast vase huge vase and they were about four feet tall and they they she uh, uh, 
a great rug was laid out and she then sat there and did these flower arrangements and then somebody would come and clear up all the leaves and the cuttings and take it all away and there was this flower arrangement which lasted about a week but the communication between Joe and my grandmother was pretty poor it was notes so Joe was the gardener? Joe was the gardener. And what was his uh, surname? Whelan, W-H-E-L-A-N, Joe Whelan. He was a lovely man. He did mostly the vegetables and a few jobs for her, but she and my great-aunt, my grandmother's sister, Aunt Phil, would go up to the garden and spend all afternoon there. Oh, I see. Gar- and they, yeah. were gar- they were wonderful gardeners. Yes. I don't think they ever went abroad much. I think my grand parents once or my grandfather once went with his sister aunt claire to madeira that was considered a huge and exciting trip i mean life was going to the west to fish yeah which they would go to connemara and fish where would they stay they would stay with they had great friends called the odlums and and they stayed at a, a house called inva which was a house on an island and you went across a bridge which was supported by b- barrels. I see. You parked the car, yeah. on, not on the island, you couldn't get across the island except on this bridge, this mm. rope bridge, which, was, which had barrels on yeah. it. So you walked across with your suitcase. Amazing. And, they, and the, yeah. I imagine the midges were appalling, and they loved the Odlums, and the Odlums owned Inver, and it's somewhere in Connemara, and they did... Those were the days when there was good fishing. The grandparents who were wonderful people, and my grandfather was a sort of Zion of the Kildare Hunt and the Kildare Club mm. and so on and the, and, the, and the racetrack. Their money, to the extent they um, had any money at the beginning, had all been spent uh, on mainly horses of one kind or another. Um, well, I mean, as, as boys, the routine was at Ballinor. David and I would go out riding. We always had ponies. And we would go out riding with three million flies. And you had to trot. In those days, you see, people don't realise now, due to insecticides, you don't have these flies anymore. I mean, you do, but not in... But I remember going riding, and there were, there was the, the, the sky was dark with uh, flies and horse flies around the your pony's head so you had to suddenly canter to get away from them so that's what we did my grandfather was very good with hounds and he actually was so good he went off to be amateur hunt i mean he was master of the kildare joint master of the kildare with a man called major bowment who lived at harristown yeah um and then and he was amateur huntsman he hunted the hounds and then he went off i'm not quite sure when and hunted the Kilkenny at the request of Lady McCalmot. And I'm not sure what years we are. I suppose this is between the wars. He would go down to Kilkenny and hunt the hounds for her. And he was very good. He was, he was you know, he was a lovely, small, most attractive, amusing, charming man. And I remember on Fridays, he would go into the bank in Dunlavin. Dunlavin in those days had a bank and he would collect the wages which were in a, a, a sort of sack small sack and he would come back and at, in the afternoon I suppose about 3 o'clock or it may have been Friday morning I can't remember the men would line up outside 
this, what was his study, which is, um, you know, that back drawing room. I do indeed. They would I'd be out and they'd come in through the window and he'd say, that'll be, hello, Stephen. I remember there was Stephen, Bill Byrne, and they, there were about four or five men, yeah. and they would pick up their, he'd count out their wages, nine shillings and sixpence, or whatever it was. Wow. And he would count it out, and, and he would sometimes say to David or me, he, David was twerp number one, and I was twerp number two. And uh, they, they say, all right, twerp number two, you come and help me do the wages. It was like a pay parade. It oh. was like an army pay parade, actually. Ballinure Estate was running into financial difficulties, and David here explains the reason why this was happening. He, the, the, the money came from two sources. Uh, Jamaica, the Jamaican properties, oh, yes. um, which provided a reasonable level of income uh, and my dear grandmother uh, the, the Miss Blackwell whom he had married who was a well-off lady when she married him she certainly wasn't well off by the time she died because most of her money had gone to supporting her husband and this place um, and there was very very little left um, uh, and we're talking about I think her estate when she died and I um, in 76 totaled 8,000 pounds um, the, the um, things began to get difficult um, during the early 30s when um, the, the, the great crash came in the US sugar went to a penny a pound um, and the result of that was that there was no money coming from the Jamaican estates yeah. anymore uh, and he then he subsequently ha had no alternative because he couldn't f he had no other no means of funding the deficits he had to sell the Jamaican estate yeah. and that was sold in 1933 at absolutely the bottom of the market um, and um, thereafter uh, things got financially much tougher mm. because there was no money yeah Financially hopeless. Yes. Uh, he didn't understand running the place at all and that you had to reinvest. And okay. I mean, I do not remember in my years there anything, any redecoration of the house. There was, I think they were running out of money pretty rapidly. They, I don't ever remember my grandmother saying, I'm going to have some new curtains mm. or I'm going to... Um, repaint some room it just didn't happen they just lived there the only thing that they did my grandmother did was in the spring she changed the covers on the chairs and sofa there were winter chairs and sofa covers and springs though obviously the spring ones had sort of roses on them yes were a chintz and that's the only token of sort of interior decoration and I, it was it was lack of money that yeah. um, had caused the problems with the house. Um, it, it, and also, of course, during the um, during the late forties uh, and fifties. I mean, Ireland generally was in a pretty uh, desperate financial and economic situation. Um, the, the land commission was at work uh, distributing. Property all over the place. Um, 
they they and the farm just sort of ticked along um and it made a tiny bit of money but didn't really make much of a contribution towards um the maintenance of a of a property like this yeah. and land was 30 pounds an acre yes imagine and he sold you see at Ballinor he i can't remember the years david will know but he sold Ballinor park and he sold the lower land there wasn't very much land when i was a child I think we had about 750 acres. Um, the place had never been very large. I think in the uh, land register of 1870, uh, Ballinor had about 1,350 acres, and it was steadily sold off to finance living here. Um, and my grandfather, in his latter years, uh, sold a lot of land, and we went down from 750 to 280 um, and currently uh, there's about 300 acres here. And here both brothers, David and Malis, talk about their education. We were then sent um, to a prep school in Broadstairs called Wellesley House. That was because uh, another Miss, Miss Blackwell, Barbara, had married the headmaster called John Boyce. And so we were sent to Wellesley House. And was she your aunt? She was a cousin I would think she was, she would be my mother's first cousin, another first cousin. And um, we went to Wellesley House, and then we went to Eton, mm -hmm. where my father had been. My father rather intelligently put us into, because we were so close in age, and probably quite competitive with each other. There always has been brotherly yeah. rivalry. We love each other very much. Well, I'm speaking for myself. I love him. Yeah. And But we always had a bit of rivalry. Um, so Daddy, I think, spotted this somehow, and he put David into his old house. Yes. Uh, with, with the same housemaster, but of course, inevitably, due to the lapse of time, the housemaster had changed. Daddy was in a house called Leggy Lambert, his housemaster, but by the time David got there, Leggy Lambert had become vice provost, and a new man had taken over called Fred Howe. And I went to a house called Mackingdale's, David Mackingdale having been exact contemporary of my father's at Eton and they were friends. Oh, I see. So we both did five years or whatever it was at um, Eton. David then went on up to Lincoln College, Oxford, to read history. I attempted to go and read history at Christchurch, Oxford, but I did so badly because <laughs> I was rather a good... Well, David was too, actually, yeah. but I was rather a good games player um, and I didn't really concentrate hard enough. I was I was privileged in one very important respect, um, in that I was privately educated at a very good prep school uh, in uh, Kent, and then I was uh, obviously able uh, to get into Eton College, uh, which I probably couldn't do now because the standards have risen so much. Um, and I was lucky enough also to get a place at a nice college at Oxford, and so. Um, educationally yes I was privileged um, but from a financial perspective uh, certainly as it affected me I was certainly not privileged and um, you know we were we considered ourselves as sort of you know well enough off for me to do that sort of thing and, and have that sort of education but certainly not well enough off to uh, do anything in the slightest bit exotic 
yeah. And and so, was there any situation uh, where he was? Uh, your your grandparents would have been desperate and wanting to to give it all up and and to leave it behind to sell it off well they were pretty close to that point um before they died um there really was no money left and now we move to the stage when david is old enough to inherit ballinure and because of his attachment and love for the place he talks here about how he went about financially saving it. You know, when he died um, in 1972, um, there was this whopping great overdraft. And, uh, I mean, yeah. you know, in, in today's world, the banks would have foreclosed for sure. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but if, in those happy days, you could go and chat to your bank manager who would give you another six months. Yeah. And there was a lot of that. Mm. Um, I had... Um, uh, fantastic grandparents, particularly my grandmother, who really ran this place. Um, and um, uh, it, in a way, it was a stroke of luck. When my grandfather died, he was actually bankrupt. Um, and I inherited this place uh, with a, an overdraft of just over £60,000 in 1972, uh, uh, which was quite a lot of money to put it mildly even then um, and a very large amount of money today and uh, when I left Oxford University um, numerous of my friends over here in Ireland said you've got to come and farm uh, uh, and I very quickly realized it took a few seconds uh, that any prospect of being able to keep my family home um, which has been with one or two slight slippages um, to the right or to the left in the same uh, family since the original land grant from James II in 1617, um, that uh, the, the possibility of keeping my home uh, was z zero, really. Um, and so I had to get on my bike uh, and <coughs> um, find a way of cobbling together some money to keep um, the, the place ticking over. Um, my home here had been left to me uh, by my grandfather um, when he died in uh, 1972. But I loved the place so much that I was determined um, uh, to try and keep it. Um, and and, and, and over, over time to um, be able to afford to restore the house uh, and uh, the land. I then um, uh, l l left um, the UK, which is where I obviously had been uh, uh, educated while, mm. at, while at Oxford, and I went off to the US, which seemed at that stage the place to go, uh, and got a job uh, with a US firm called White Weld uh, as a broker and subsequently an investment banker. In the meantime, um, this place here uh, was effectively being um, overseen by me. My grandmother was still alive and I had a deal with all the local suppliers, i.e. the garage and the pharmacy and so on, that 50% of every bill that they issued um, had to be sent to me in the US because I knew that 
if my grandmother felt she couldn't keep the overheads um, uh, paid for, um, she would put the place on the market. That went on for about four years, and then she died in um, uh, in 1976. And I, at the um, great age of uh, about um, 25 or 6, suddenly found myself owning outright um, Ballinure, uh, we had six buckets on the top floor, catching the leaks. There was no central heating. Uh, the electrics hadn't been touched for many, many years. Um, there was a lot of damp. Uh, the place was pretty shambolic. The, the place now is in very good condition. Um, I was fortunate enough to have sold uh, a, a business a couple of times in um, the UK, where I was a partner, and that enabled uh, my um, my present wife Claire and I to tackle a complete restoration of this house between about 2000 and 2003, mm. and that involved just about everything uh, from uh, windows, floors, cornices, uh, ceilings, walls, which were still largely covered with... Um, horsehair plaster, um, central heating, electrics, uh, and kitchen. Oh, it was indeed a, a labour of love, so, it was uh, a very, because otherwise you wouldn't do it. Uh, it was a very expensive labour of love, um, and of course it's rather like, in, uh, I mean, fortuitously, uh, the, the house is uh, what um, has been described by one or two people as possibly one of the nicest mid-size houses in Ireland, and I think it certainly um, lives up to that description. Mm. Uh, but it nevertheless uh, is rather like the fourth road bridge. You know, you mm. spend an awful lot of money doing stuff, and then you have to A, maintain it, and B, of course, every 10 or 15 years, um, you have to tackle another room. And finally, I asked David about where he stands in relation to his identity and his responsibilities towards Ballinure and its heritage. Of course, there is a sense of responsibility. Um, and, you know, you could almost say this house has never been on the market, which it hasn't, that one is no more than a tenant for life, really. Um, and I would very much hope that my... Uh, my son, who is currently 17, uh, who actually loves his place almost as much as I do, um, that he will be able to keep it and keep it ticking over. Do I expect him uh, to come and live here? Uh, no, certainly not initially. Mm. Um, but I do. I would expect him uh, to use it very much as I've used it. That is to say, to come here on a regular basis, uh, oversee the property, uh, and hopefully there will be enough money for him uh, to maintain the property, uh, which certainly wasn't the case for me. I see myself as Anglo-Irish, um, and I've always seen myself as Anglo-Irish. Um, and what does that mean in effect? Mm. That I've got a great affinity for Ireland. Um, I love the country. I love the people. Um, uh, I always support, always have done, Ireland in any international rugby match or any other sporting um, uh, sporting competition. Um, and uh, I've been lucky enough to have uh, 
built up a small group of friends, which has obviously widened greatly over the years, uh, over here. Um, and this was, this was always regarded by me as my home. We had a house in London, and, and when we lived in New York, we had a flat in New York, or Saudi Arabia had a house in Saudi Arabia. This has always been home. Well, we've come to the end, and I hope you enjoyed listening to Life in an Irish Country House, which we have dedicated to the life of David Reed Scott, who recently passed away. If you would like to hear the full interview, you can find it at irishlifeandlore.com. I'm Morris O'Keefe, and thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.